what does it mean to be holy? And what does scripture teach us about holiness and covenant? Can we become holy like Jesus? Join us today as we explore these questions and more with Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at Franciscan University. And I'm Father Dave Pavanka. I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavankin. I'm president at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And we'll be discussing what the scripture teaches us about holiness and how do we become holy. I'm joined by our panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, who is professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and our guest panelist, Dr. John Bergsma, who is a professor of theology at Franciscan University, specializing in the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Today we have a special guest that you may recognize. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn is the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology in the New Evangelization here at Franciscan University. Scott is also the founder and president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, as well as a prolific author and speaker. Today we'll talk about one of his latest books, Holy is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. Thanks for being here, Scott. Don't Great be nervous. Time. You're going to do fine. <laughs> Thank you. That's yeah. reassuring. Okay, so here's, let me just start. Here's the question I have. Why this book at this time? I mean, obviously you've written dozens of books, but why holiness now, this time? Is it just seem to be the next one, or is there something else going on? No, there was something else. Uh, it goes back slightly over 50 years. <laughs> okay. Uh, 1972 is when I came to the grace of an adult conversion as a a 14-year-old. And uh, 50 years later, you know, I'm, I think it was the year 2019, and I recognize I'm approaching my spiritual jubilee. And so looking back and realizing, okay, becoming a Christian is one thing, becoming a Catholic is a bigger thing, but becoming a saint is a much harder thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yet it's the only thing that matters. Yeah. And so spending all of those years studying Scripture and then getting to teach it, you begin to sense that holiness is more central to the story than you pick up on, you know, especially in the opening book of Genesis where it's only used once. Yeah. But it's also the center of the history of salvation. So it's not just the plot. It's not just the story. It really is the, uh, the divine purpose and strategy mm -hmm. by which God turns sinners into something that we could never make ourselves, saints. And since Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for holiness, for without it you will not see God, well, what's the option? Yeah, you're, ro -ro. Yeah, yeah. you're going to see disgrace and yeah. shame. And so it's like, well, you know, get the ducks in a row and start really, you know, striving for it. But I also sensed that, you know, I had been studying holiness back in 72. Okay. Uh, my mentor, Professor R.C. Sproul, was developing talks that later became his best-selling book of the over 100 he wrote called The Holiness of God. And, and, and I just, I was captured by it. I mean, the, the idea of divine transcendence, the holy other, it was just, you know, as a teenager facing, you know, this post-60s hippie hangover where all you need is love, it, it just, 
it, it just drew me out of myself and made me realize I serve a God who's glorious and majestic yeah, yeah, yeah. and awesome long before the cliches. Yeah, yeah that's cool. John, uh, Scott, you are an astonishment. It seems to me, age 14, you have this awakening. I mean, Newman had to wait till he was 15. <laughs> Jesus, of course, was 12. Uh, when I was 14, I think I might have been facing juvenile detention. Uh, who knows? That's but, another episode. Yeah, of I had just come out of juvenile show. court for two and a half years. I saw you. guys run into each other. Time past each other. Yeah, right. John and I were praying somewhere. So. <laughs> right. Yes, indeed. Uh, but, you know, it's the top of the show. Let me just get it off my, my chest straight away. The cover is gorgeous. Of course. It's really course. stunning. I was looking for you in the photograph, but I, I, I had mistaken uh, uh, you for Joshua. <laughs> yeah. But the dedication is really quite moving uh, to your son, uh, uh, who is now celebrating an anniversary of, of his priesthood. I, I suspect the next book will be dedicated to his, his first bishopric. <laughs> who knows? But it's a moving, moving testimony uh, to something that you can't uh, survive without holiness. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and Scott, you mentioned R.C. Sproul, and this is interesting because we both grew up as Calvinists. Right. And in some, you know, branches of Protestantism and Calvinism, it seems like holiness is kind of optional because it's not part of your salvation. You know, so as long as you have the proper doctrine and you express your faith in Christ, you know, and pray to receive Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior and, and so on. And, and then, uh, you know, I, I grew up honestly, I, and it probably was not the best representative of my tradition, but I grew up with this mentality that, oh, you know, growth and holiness is an option for, you know, kind of super erogatory, you know, an additional right. thing. So, you know, how did, how did Sproul deal with that? And, and what was your experience, uh, you know, dealing with holiness before coming into the Catholic Church? Yeah, I mean, there are so many different shades of Protestants. You know, you have the Calvinists, who's sort of the hardcore, but then closer to the Catholic side, you've got the Wesleyans. And they emphasize holiness. And for Calvinists, they emphasize it way too much. <laughs> you almost make it seem like we could become holy, you know. Whereas for the Calvinist, you know, God is sovereign. God is holy. God alone. And that isn't wrong. It's just incomplete. And we are sinful. In fact, T in the five petals of the tulip, total depravity. And so we cannot scale the heights of divine holiness. It would be presumptuous to, to even aspire to that. Well, that's not wrong either. But what we can't do doesn't limit God. And so when you recognize the sovereignty of God and you see that he is uniquely holy, you, you want to call off all your bets about becoming a saint until you begin to realize, and this is what dawned on me when I became a father for the first time 40 years ago, that if God is the Father Almighty, then all of his power, all of his knowledge, all of his goodness, and so all of his holiness is being harnessed to do precisely what we can't do to achieve the only thing for which he made us. Mm. And it's like, well then, you know, if the glove fits, you must acquit, <laughs> you know. It, it just struck me that, well then you cannot make this gap so impassable that God through the incarnate word cannot pass over. Right. But yeah. isn't, isn't this something that, it seems to me in the book that you come to that. Oh, that, that you don't see that in, years. Right, right, and you don't yeah. see that necessarily in the Old Testament. So. You, you speak of the burning bush and the prophets and, and uh, the Genesis text and the Exodus text about, and it's not really about you or I being holy, but it's about God being holy or things being holy. So maybe, again, the, it's what does the scripture say? So at the beginning, at the Old Testament, how is it revealing holiness? How is it speaking about holiness? Well, you know, as I mentioned, Kodesh occurs once with regard to holiness in all 50 chapters of Genesis. At the beginning in Genesis 2 verse 3, 
at the climax of creation, the seventh day, which we know is the Sabbath, the sign of the covenant. And so it represents sort of the goal of creation and really the goal of history. And what is it? The covenant. But what is that? Holiness. He hallows it. And so, you know, when you continue reading, you realize that man is not just made intelligent and upright. He's made holy. And so he's called to holiness, but then the fall that occurs in the next chapter is what the catechism calls the death of the soul. God had breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So unlike the animals, he wasn't just breathing air or oxygen. He was breathing the breath of God, what theologians call sanctifying grace, so that when God warned him, the day you eat the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. And the serpent said, you won't. And they ate and they didn't die a natural death. It, It occurs to you, wait a second. They did die. He wasn't issuing a vain threat. They, they committed spiritual suicide. This is what 1 John 5.16 calls mortal sin, the same term for death that you find in the Septuagint. And so you realize, wait a minute, this was more catastrophic than we realized. You know, they continued living naturally, but they died supernaturally. So original sin, as Paul describes it in Romans 5, is transmitting spiritual death. We're born with human nature, but devoid of divine nature, We need to be resurrected more than Lazarus does, but it takes a lot longer than four days, you know? It takes the rest of salvation history until you come to the climax. And, you know, when you recognize this, you have to kind of change your pace. Because I think most of the time when you're reading scripture or just living the spiritual life, it's it's a sprint. But what if it's not? What if it's a marathon? (laughs) What if it's like, you know, the... The Camino. Right, 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 right. You know, it, it seems to me that when you read uh, Scripture, especially the Old Testament, it really is uh, an exercise in frustration. Because <laughs> they're, they're, they're raising a standard that none of us can keep. Right. I mean, you, you go into even the book of Leviticus, the very third book of the Bible. Where holiness and, explodes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, th- there's where Moses, who speaks with the voice of God, is enjoining the Israelites, you guys had better be holy as he's holy. And the proof, of course, is you keep the commandments. But of course, nobody can keep the commandments. I mean, that's why Jesus had to come. So a standard is set so lofty, so sublime that nobody can reach it. Uh, And that, I think, is a recipe almost for despair without Christ. You know, this gets back to what John was gesturing toward, and that is the Protestant, the Reformed, the Calvinist, you know, taking it up a notch from Luther because this idea that we can't keep the commandments. You know, for Luther, the law condemns, and then the gospel forgives. And so there's a dialectic, a tension. You know, for the Calvinist, there's a third point to the law, and that is to sanctify, and yet there's also the frank recognition that we can't keep the commandments. And and I didn't put it in the book. It just seemed a little esoteric. But one of my favorite discoveries at the Council of Trent, the official Catholic response to the Protestants, in June of uh, 1547, you have this, um, the commandments of God are impossible to observe for a man who's justified. That is a rash statement that deserves an anathema back (laughs) from the fathers. But it goes on. God does not command impossibilities, but by commanding, he admonishes you both to do what you can do and to pray for what you cannot do, so he will assist you that you may be able. And it's like, it feels like he's commanding the impossible because when we look in the mirror, it is humanly impossible. But when we look up to him, we realize he is ready, willing, and able to make up for what we lack. 
to give us what we and, need. And isn't that the greater sovereign or the greater miracle is, is just that, is that us in our weakness and our brokenness really can't do it. And, and so the testimony of the saints is that. It's a testimony of the profound power of God working and operating in this human mess. That's yeah, right. he, he saves you know, us, not despite of our weakness and sin, but in the very midst of that wickedness. Of right. Yeah. yeah. And, and yes, Scott, you know, we're, we're talking about obedience to the commandments and you know, how can we do that? And of course, we need God's grace. But one of the things I was most struck by in your book was your clarification that holiness is not simply righteousness. It's not simply the obedience to the commands. There's something more to it. And, you know, you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is an insight that I discovered, you know, years ago, but it was just growing ever so slowly. Righteousness and holiness are almost invariably confused. And they're not opposed, obviously. But theologians have as their job description to distinguish for the purpose of uniting. So we distinguish the, the three persons in the one nature in the Trinity, the two natures in the one person in Christology. We distinguish righteousness, which is the province of the king in the court, from holiness, which is the province of the high priest in the temple. This is justice. This is sanctity. And justification and sanctification are inseparably linked, but you get a sense that Sanctity is higher. So you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness in Matthew 6, but by the time you get to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it's the man who, it's the wise man who builds his house upon the rock, which is a Solomonic illusion. The wisest of men who built the greatest of houses, the temple, upon the foundation stone in Zion. So the temple is really what kingship and justice are for. And suddenly you step back and you realize, well, that's what we mean by the two tables of the law. The first three commandments, table one, yeah. deal with the right God, then calling upon his name without vanity, you know, not taking his name in vain, and then remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the only time holiness occurs in the yeah. Decalogue. Mm -hmm. Then the last seven are all the horizontal plane of the social sphere. Jesus says the greatest commandment out of the 613, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first table. And then the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And again, the mesh is, this is primarily holiness. This is primarily righteousness. They go together, but they're not equal. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. not interchangeable. That, that to me is, it, it explains why the Father sends the Son, but the real goal is to give us the Holy Spirit. So, but the interface between the two, the tension is resolved precisely in the person of Christ, yeah. who bridges that gap. The royal high priest. Right. Yeah. yeah you, you think of Job, for example, who wrestles uh, with, with doubt uh, and uh, appeals uh, to a Jesus he does not yet know to somehow adjudicate the difference because uh, Jehovah is too severe, too strong. He needs an umpire who will right. put his hand on both. And uh, that, um, that umpire, of course, is, is Jesus, who alone enables me to be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. It requests me to reflect on a friend of mine who he called himself a virtuous pagan. And, and his point was, was that he was following, quote unquote, the commandments. He was living a virtuous life, but he was not, he didn't recognize the call to be holy or even the fact that he could be holy. And I think that there's some, that, that some, that's some the distinction you're making is that you can follow these, quote unquote, rules, and it doesn't necessarily make the person holy. Right. That that's an operation of God. The rich young ruler kept all the commandments yeah, in the second table. Absolutely. But when called upon to relinquish all the wealth, you can tell that he had been neglecting yeah, the first just, three. Just one little thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength means to be willing to give him everything. And that is not only a work of supererogation. Right. It really is entirely reasonable. 
if we got our life from him yeah. and we give it back, then to love him more than we love ourselves makes total sense. Okay, right. I want to talk a little bit about the burning bush. Great. Because there was a significant event. So uh, we have a lot to discuss related to the topic of holiness, so stay with us. To become a saint is to be holy or to be set apart. And it's not a message that needs words. It's being the reflection of the face of Christ um, and just striving to bring everyone with you, around you, to heaven on your walk with you. Um, and just because the saints are in heaven, everyone in heaven is a saint. And to reach that point one day, to know that like we are made for the eternal life and not for this world. Walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. You'll explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage in the Holy Land, Poland, France, Austria, Italy, and more destinations. Find out more at franciscan.edu pilgrimages. I think becoming a saint is all about this ongoing conversion, knowing that there's no limits to our holiness, there's no limits to receiving His graces and growing in relationship with the Lord and just like sharing His virtues with others and knowing that like until we reach heaven, like nothing ever stops here on earth. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're discussing the theme of holiness uh, with Dr. Scott Hahn, his new book, Holy is His Name, and you're gonna to talk to us about the burning bush. Well, the burning bush is a breakthrough moment because when you read all 50 chapters of Genesis, as I mentioned in our first segment, holiness occurs once and then it's forgotten, or seemingly. And then suddenly in Exodus, there is in only 40 chapters an explosion, 98 occurrences of the variations of Kodesh, beginning with Take off your shoes, yeah. Moses, for the ground that you stand on is holy. So here is the burning bush that's being burnt but not destroyed. Mm -hmm. And that is a perfect illustration of what God wants for his people. He wants the consuming fire of his eternal love to consume us without destroying us. Well, that is more than slightly paradoxical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so Moses is experiencing what Rudolf Otto refers to as the Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinans. This is a mystery, and it beckons my attention. At the same time, it is causing me to tremble, and yet it fascinates me. And so you're repelled, and you're finding it irresistible at the same time, and that's sort of the love of God. But it's not clear yet. It's too early for the love of God to have surfaced like the seed that is going to become something of a, a visible plant. But this is where holiness is planted. <coughs> and what you find then is that it begins to grow more and more, and through the 10 signs that show God's superiority over the, the gods of Egypt, and then bringing to the Mount Sinai, if you hear my voice and if you keep my covenant, you'll be a holy nation, you'll be a kingdom of priests. Mm -hmm. There again, righteousness, kingdom, holiness, priests. And of course, they don't hear the, the voice. Right, right. They hear thunder, Moses hears it, but they don't keep the covenant either. They worship the calf, and so they're desecrated almost like Adam was when he consumed the forbidden fruit for his first meal. You know, uh, what could be more staggering than the paradox that you have just uh, parsed? Uh, a God, this crushing majesty, the overpowering glory of God, the kabod, yet comes so near, so close to us, not to destroy, but to divinize, right. divinize yeah. to raise up, to elevate, to make us like him. I mean, that's staggering. We trip over it all the time, every time we go to Holy Communion. Mm. It's, it's the other, the tremendous other, who yet becomes so intimate that he's closer to us than we are to ourselves. 
that kind of tenderness in the midst of transcendence is, is pretty unsettling. It's, you can never come to an end of it. No, it certainly is. You know, and John and I have done many things that pertain to scripture and holiness. And one of the things that I discovered with his help was that, you know, you have the Exodus bringing Israel out of Egypt and idolatry and darkness. But with the calf, you can see that it's easier to take Israel out of Egypt yeah. than it is to take Egypt, Egypt out of Israel. <laughs> yeah. right. And so the prophets are the ones who point to the goal of holiness. You know, objects in the mirror might be closer than they seem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in this case, they're much further because the prophets are pointing to a new exodus, a greater exodus, yeah. a new covenant that won't abolish, but will fulfill and surpass. And Elijah is sort of the one who is the, the precursor. And he actually goes back to Horeb in 1 Kings 19. Mm -hmm. and, and he's awaiting instructions from the Lord God. And so there in the cave, in the darkness, as it were, there's this mighty wind and mighty, I mean, it breaks the rocks, mm -hmm. just like the mighty wind that, you know, caused the, uh -huh. the Red Sea to part, but the Lord was not in the wind. Right. And then there is this earthquake and the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there was a fire. I mean, this is shades of Sinai where the mighty wind and then the earthquake that caused the mountain to tremble and then the consuming fire that took over the summit of Sinai, but God's not in any of those. And then he hears a whisper, mm -hmm. a still small voice. And he's expecting something loud, and, but he covers himself with his mantle like the seraphim before God's holiness. And he puts himself in the cave because he realizes this holiness is darkness to those who say they can see, you know? And I, I'm always reminded of my first mass when I think of the still small voice, because I, I, I remember, you know, in the back pew, just listening and watching. And all I heard was a still small voice this is my body. Hmm. And more than an earthquake, I just thought, and so it is. what he just said, yeah. Yeah, it was like the holy sacrifice of the mass, the holy Eucharist. This is the new Passover. This is the new Exodus. And the new Moses is working through that Jesuit up there at Marquette's campus. It's like, okay, flesh and blood did not reveal that to me, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, Scott, I mean, that's, you know, you're working towards, you know, obviously in the New Covenant, what's so amazing is that we can share God's holiness. And one of the things that you point out in the book, which I never realized before, you know, been working in the Old Testament, that's my wheelhouse. Right. <laughs> you know, I never noticed that no one is called holy in the Old Testament until you get very late. There's a, an instance in uh, the book of Daniel where right. the saints of the Most High be, become referred to. But then you move into the New Testament, you get this explosion of, for example, St. Paul referring to the holy ones, you know, the, the saints at Corinth or the saints at Colossae and so on. So what's the difference? What's the, what's the shift that's taking place here? Yeah, I mean, we're referring to what I describe in the book based upon an insight that we got, I got from a mutual friend, Rabbi Joshua Berman, a brilliant Orthodox Jewish rabbi, biblical scholar, who wrote a book called The Temple. And I think he must have had Christians in mind because in contrast to the New Testament, you know, a lot of people are, well, Israel's called to holiness. They're called to the holy land, the holy city, mm -hmm. the holy temple. But no Israelite is ever referred to as a saint. And I'm like, Always a place? Not always a place. Yeah, always okay. a place always or place. vestments okay. or, you know, sacrifices. Things are holy. Things, okay, places, okay. Okay. you know. And people are all called to holiness. But until the power of the Most High overshadows the Blessed Virgin. Mm -hmm. You know, and you also refer to Daniel 7. You know, there I found an exception, the saints of the Most High, but wait a minute, that's in the second half of the Oracle of Daniel 7, 
The first half is the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory to the Ancient of Days to get this kingdom that he turns around and confers upon the saints of the Most High. That's the exception in the Hebrew Bible that proves the rule because not until the Father sends the Son of God to become the Son of, mm-hmm. Son of Man do sons and daughters of men become partakers of the divine nature. And it happens, and yet hardly anybody notices it. And so it's not just being forgiven, that's awesome. It's not just being healed. It really is being divinized, being made sons and daughters of God. And I think that's so essential is that oftentimes when we think of what Jesus did, it's just what he took away, which he obviously did. Right. But it was not just that. It's what it does. You use the term theosis, that that we become divinized, we become changed, we become transformed. And to your point, only God can do that. Right. Only God can do that. I can desire it, but only God can actually bring that about in my life. Yeah, I mean, theosis is an ancient notion. I mean, it's embedded in the second, third, and fourth century figures, both Greek and Latin. Theopoesis, God makes us divine. Uh And that's what... That scares some people, though, doesn't it? It It does. You know, as Scott, we were talking before the show, you know, we, we had this shared experience where we were at a... Uh, a Bible, a biblical studies conference, and there was a, a non-Catholic theologian expounding on Second Peter one four, which says that we have become partakers of the divine nature, and he was doing kind of exegetical backflips, trying to get out of the plain sense of that verse and deny that we actually do partake of the divine nature because he regarded that as quasi blasphemous. And I think other religions would probably regard, you know, the idea of partaking the divine nature as blasphemous, like perhaps Islam, you know. So, but let's take that objection seriously for a moment. Are we treading on thin ice as Catholics when we dare to say that we can partake of God's nature and, you know, truly have our natures change? I mean, how would we respond to an objection like that? Well, I mean, what Daniel 7 is pointing to is the answer to the question, that it would be blasphemous and not mere presumption to think that we can make ourselves partakers of the divine nature. And so this is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 2.9 when he says, Eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It's never entered the heart or the mind of man what God has in store for us. The only thing for which we were made was to share his nature. And so he gave us all these gifts in the old covenant, you know, family, the beautiful sunset, and countless other things that are created. But all of them are signs that point to the ultimate gift that God created us to give us, and that is the gift of himself. Now, is he capable of giving it to people who don't even see it or hear it or want it? Well, no, in a certain sense. And so he has to enter into solidarity with that race to raise us up. But he doesn't do it as a solo flight. Mm. He really does it through the Blessed Virgin. Yeah. And this is what appalled me as a, a Protestant, that the burning bush was being used by the Cappadocians and other fathers in the fourth and fifth centuries to refer to Mary. Well, a bush is by nature something that burns and is destroyed by fire. But what if God's fire is consuming the bush, but the bush is still a bush? Then the nature is respected and the grace is not just a gift. The grace is nothing less than the consuming fire of God. It is the divine nature made to dwell in the Blessed Virgin, the burning I, bush. I, I think of uh, Paul Claudel's uh, statement, asking God to make us worthy of the flame that consumes us. And that applies especially yes. to our Blessed Mother. I mean, the, the second half of the Hail Mary begins with Holy Mary, Mother of God. Mm. Pray for us. The only reason why she can pray for us is because she's imbued with the holiness of God himself. 
It's not blasphemous uh, to say that. The real blasphemy, I think, is when, when you withhold from God the right to do as he pleases. If mm. he wants mm-hmm. to divinize us, then, then he jolly well can. Yeah, I mean, so. that, that, that's his job description. He wants to make us like himself, not by dint of nature, but by dint of grace. It's a courtesy right. he extends to us. And if we say, oh, no, you can't do that, God, then we are limiting the capacity of God to be God, to be generous. You know, the spiritual Vesuvius explodes, you know, because the Father sent the Son. We don't just know God as creator or Lord and lawgiver. We know him as Abba through the Son. But wait, if we, we've got to wait for it because it's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You know, God almost allowed, I'm sorry to do this, <laughs> he almost allowed the devil to employ a sort of waterboarding to the human race, mm-hmm. you know, where we come up gasping for breath. We, we finally realize we need Christ. We need the Holy Spirit more than we ever imagined. So we can now profess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of good citizens, good, stu- no, yeah. saints. Yeah. And it's like, this is almost too good to be true. But that's what I had not seen. Yeah. In here. And what does it consist of? Well, it goes back to Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The first table. Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. But then I think the real breakthrough comes when Jesus says, love your enemies. Yeah. Love your enemies? Right. Yeah. Love your enemies like the Father does the sunshine and the rain, because that's what leads up to Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect right. as your heavenly right. Father is perfect. I'd almost prefer be holy yeah. as your Father, as, as, yeah. as the Lord is holy. But Luke six thirty six is the key because Luke's version is be merciful for your heavenly Father is merciful. Now, if we're a multiple choice, we'd all choose Luke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But God's mercy is what perfects us because God showed his love for us in that while we were yet enemies, right. He loved us and Christ died for us. So his mercy perfects us and makes it possible to be holy. You have this sacred trifecta, yeah. but only through mercy, only by imitating the well, Father, yeah, only the, by the, loving the our enemies. The acid test, of course, in imitating Jesus is that we, we love the neighbor. And the neighbor is very often the enemy. Yeah. And Jesus did not die for his friends. He had no friends. Uh, I mean, maybe Joseph, but he was already dead. Yeah. And the right. blessed mother, Waiting him. Our, our solitary boast. Yeah but he died for his enemies. So if you're gonna be like Jesus, you have to extend the olive branch to people who precisely do not deserve to be loved because they're so unlovely. He said, love your enemies. He didn't say, don't have any enemies. Or don't like them, but you've gotta love them, which means you've gotta go right to the foot of the cross and carry that weight with you. That's holiness. A few nights nights ago, we had Immaculate on campus and she was talking. I was thinking of her. It was so beautiful, but because that's what she said, the reality, it became real for her when she literally began, I'm going to get emotional, when she began to forgive her enemy. And her enemy was literally her neighbor. Literally, they went to school together and killed her family. And, and, and she talks about this, taking, I, I preached on it the other day, actually, <laughs> taking the Our Father seriously. And she, she said, she re- forgive as I've been forgiven. She goes, I, I have to quit just saying those words. But and that's, this is divinization. I mean, this was miraculous to see this woman who was in a small bathroom for three months with seven other people, hearing all of the murder taking place outside, and then coming out of that and greeting literally her enemy and forgiving them. It's just that, that is sanctification. So we'll be right back with more of Franciscan University Presents. Please stay with us. All the sacraments by their nature increase 
uh, the level of sanctifying grace in the soul, assuming you receive them in a state of grace, um, except for um, confession and sometimes and baptism and anointing of the sick. Um, but they help us to grow in all the infused virtues, eliminate vice, and increase our charity in the soul. So our love of God, they reconcile us to God the Father through His Son. We become members of a family that originates in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but that Holy Spirit overshadows the Blessed Virgin, so we become her children as well. People knew that when the Messiah came, that this promise would call them as a covenant people to be what? A light to the nations. And everybody is invited to walk through that door of mercy. The only key we need is the one that each one of us has. But it is my sin that opens up the mercy of God. Amen? Welcome back, and thanks so much for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, which we record here in the Comart studio at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Our students are operating the cameras and taking care of all the equipment. Our theology professors, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. John Bergsma, and Dr. Scott Hahn, were discussing his newest book, A Holy is His Name, speaking about the Lord's holiness. At the end of the last section segment, we were in the Our Father, so how about yeah. we just start Love there of again? enemy, immaculate, yeah. and all of that. You know, sometimes I, I end up spending two or three years working on a book, and then the next year or two after it comes out, I begin discovering more and more. I wish I would have, I, yeah, 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 yeah. And this is one of those things because holiness I identify in terms of the twofold love of God above all and the love of neighbor as self. But, you know, love of neighbor as self is taken from Leviticus 19, 18. But the idea of the Pharisees is that you love your neighbor but not your enemy. So Jesus trumps that by saying, no you love your enemy. And he goes on to explain that by teaching the disciples to pray the Our Father. Now, we hear and we dare to pray saying Our Father. It doesn't seem that daring to us, but it would have been back then because mm -hmm. even the high priest in the Jerusalem temple would not dare to address the deity as Our Father. So only when the Father sends the Son to give us the Spirit are we empowered to be able to pray in this brand new and fulfilling way. But when you get down to the bottom, when you get to the last petition, I mean, it's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, holiness jumps out. You know, we're praying to become saints, but the closing petition sort of finalized, they close the deal. You know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass mm -hmm. against us. Lead us not into temptation. And most temptations arise precisely because of our refusal to forgive those who trespass against us in which case we're going to be delivered to the hands of the evil one. Yeah. And so it's really a tight formula there. Yeah. But the only petition that Jesus adds an explanatory gloss is, if you don't forgive the yeah, sins yeah, of others, yeah. you will not be forgiven. Why'd you have to say yeah, that? Not, we got Ouch, the point. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's so much, it's similar to what Paul is doing in, in Romans 12 and 13. He talks about presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, but it's not just our bodies, it really is the body of Christ. And in Romans 13, he's talking about righteousness, not so much holiness, love of neighbor, which is the fulfillment of the law. But at the end, the hinge in which it turns from Romans 12 to 13 is do not avenge yourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, love your enemies. Yeah. He burning coals upon them in a certain sense, yeah. but God will take that love yeah. that you show them and bring about a greater good. What, what strikes me about the Our Father, I, Correct me if I'm mistaken, there are seven petitions. Right. But the initial, the catalyzing 
petition is, hallowed be thy name. It's not as if we hallow his name. It's rather, I think, an acknowledgement that his name is intrinsically and eternally holy. And so that sort of authorizes uh, us to petition for the following six favors, including forgiving neighbors, forgiving enemies as Christ forgave them. I I think that linkage is pretty implicit that if you don't forgive your, your enemy, God's not really going to stoop down and forgive you. It's pretty clear that that's what follows from A, uh, that's B. Right. So they go together, stand or fall together. Uh, and and it, it's, it's a weighty kind of mandate. Uh, and that's where the rubber hits the road. If you can't do that, then you're disqualified from the kingdom. Right. Yeah. You know, if you call upon God and you name him Father, that implies your family. Right. And yeah. if he is holy, you're not making his name any holier than it is but you're asking him to make you holier than you already are. And that is the key. Yeah, and I was so struck, Scott. Um, You have this passage in the book where you're talking about, uh, you know, finding God's will for your life. Yes. Of course, we we teach on this campus full of young people who are trying to discover their vocation. You know, do, do I major in this? Do I major in that? What's my career? Do I, you know, court this person? Do I marry that person, et cetera? all these life issues, and they're in this fervor of trying to discover the vocation. And then you cut right through that, and you point out that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, Paul tells us what our vocation is. This is God's will for your life. Are you ready? Your sanctification, which is another way of saying your holiness. And uh, that, that struck me like, bang, right in the forehead. And I thought, wow, you know, we don't realize that. So this, this book on holiness is not, you know, uh, just another book on a biblical topic, like we could have chosen peace, we could have chosen, um, you know, thankfulness or something like this. You're really aiming for the center of what God's plan of salvation for is for us in our holiness. And I thought to myself, would, would, our, would our day-to-day choices be illuminated if we began each day waking up and thinking, God's will for my life this day is that I become holy? You know, and how would that work out? Can I just jump on yeah. that too? Is, is that you, especially in, in the end of the book, you talk about we're holy because we belong to God, things that belong to God, but that it's because Christ dwells in me, right? That that, that has a profound difference in my life and what I do. And so my, my danger is I don't want to end this program without really articulating that this call to holiness is for everybody and, and not just for that person, but for the baptized individual that Christ dwells in that, and the fruit of that ought to be holiness. My concern is, is that we have this image of holiness in its Mother Teresa and it's not right. me. Where it's the person who's a lot quieter, who bows more, who has incense in their pockets just in case, that person's called to be holy. But not me because I, I work on a car or I'm, I'm kind of rough around the edges. Speak to that, that this sanctifying grace that God dwells in me, Christ dwells in me, I can actually be holy. Well, all of the saints except Our Lady are rough around the edges, yeah. especially it's my the favorite. the only thing they all have in Rome. common. Right, <laughs> right. You know, there is no saint without a past, and so there's no sinner without a future. Uh, rough around the edges is sort of like a qualifying yeah, yeah. element <laughs> We're in there. good company. <laughs> yeah, but what John is saying, I think, is the key, because we often approach God, you know, in a certain sense that he's reduced to creator, lawgiver, and judge. But if he's father and he's merciful, then he's not a puppeteer. It isn't like, well, what am I supposed to do? What's my next move? What's the parking space I'm supposed to take? You know, what's the class that I'm supposed to sign up for? Be holy. Okay. You know, as a father, I didn't want to predetermine and kind of 
dictate all of what my kids did. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed much more their freedom. Mm -hmm. And as they learned how to love, all the more did I enjoy it. And I'm not a better father than God. You know, He <laughs> enjoys that freedom and gives us His Spirit precisely for the purpose of liberating us from this self-wretched, you know, uh, selfishness that uh, self-worshipping wretches. As someone. What, what, what I don't want to do is collapse grace into nature, but it does seem to me a, a given, a axiomatic, that if the desire for God is universal, we all hunger and thirst for God, for that completion without which uh, we're, we're not human, not fully human, then using your waterboarding image. Must uh, we? <laughs> I, I think it, it's, it's, it's inspired. I thought he would like it. <laughs> we're gasping for air. I mean, Daniel Liu has a wonderful phrase, asphyxiation, we're impoverished, destitute without prayer, because we're, we're literally cut off from the oxygen of the spirit. And that's the desire we all have, even without grace, but in the absence of grace, we can't fulfill it. We can't find our way home to God without becoming holy. Mm -hmm. And becoming mm -hmm. holy is a gift. Mm -hmm. You can't earn it. It's not an entitlement. I mean, every month I get a social security check. I'm, I'm owed that. But God, God doesn't owe me grace. But if he gives it to me, it, it's, it's pure surplus. It's over the top. Mm -hmm. And to be grateful, to express that gratitude, maybe I should try to be a little bit more like God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, when God recognizes our freedom, even when we abuse it, you know, getting to your point about how grace and nature united, when, when the supernatural grace is rejected, what is left is not the natural, but the unnatural. Yeah. And our culture gives us lots of proof of that. I was going to ask that question. So you say the things that are holy are the things of God. So if a person rejects that, is it not just that they're neutral, but how, do, how does God look? How do we look on that person? How do we, does that make sense? Is yeah. That, okay. Yeah. How do you look on that? Well, we look at that person as actually, you know, in enmity with God, but God loves his enemies. Of course, of course. And so Romans 1 describes what the wrath of God looks like, and that is giving sinners what they want and deepening their addiction. Yeah. On the other hand, he reveals his mercy in Romans 2, where the mercy of God is often what gets the drunk driver pulled over and his license yeah. taken away. And so what we mistake for wrath is often mercy. And so okay. God is bestowing sunshine and rain upon his enemies for the purpose of winning them. And he's, he's asking us to kind of get enlisted to, to join that. But back to your point about, you know, Marvel superheroes are not what we mean by saints, only we don't see yeah. the big S on Superman or Spider-Man or Batman, you know? Yeah. It's so funny that the unnatural is exhibited by looking for superheroes who are less than men, less than human. They're bats, they're spiders, you know? Yeah, yeah. Whereas the God-man yeah. is the one who gives us the superheroic by what? Learning to, to latch his sandals, yeah. learning to spell in Hebrew. Yeah. You know, the Holy Family, shows that everything, setting the table, you know, cleaning I up. I love you said you tell the mother changing a diaper. And the, I mean, that's just those practical concrete things are not separate from the God's call to holiness. Right. The right. holiness, you know, the sacred is not opposed to the secular. Yeah. The sacred is opposed to the sinful, yeah. period. Yeah. And so what you do for six days matters precisely because it's ordered to the Sabbath, the seventh day in the old covenant. But since Christ came before we were born, how fitting that the seventh day is the first day of resurrection. So we celebrate this new creation and then go to work because it has this capable, it has this capacity to, you know, overflow the, the riverbanks and bring the living water. When, when, when Jesus says in the New Testament, without me, you can do nothing. 
I, I think that needs to be construed uh, metaphysically. Uh, without Jesus, the only thing we can do is nothing, and that's another word for sin, the absence of being. It has no weight. Uh, and, and, and so we fall into nothingness when we sin. It, it doesn't mean we're, we're strutting our stuff and we're making a big splash. Maybe in the secular order, that's the impression we give. But in the order that really matters, the order of grace and God, mm-hmm. we're less than zero. We're almost a kind of demonic nothingness without Christ. I mean, theologically, that is so true. I mean, metaphysically, without Christ, we can do nothing. The gospel, the Holy Spirit, is not plan B. Mm-hmm. Right. It's plan A. It's right. the only plan. And, and Paul spells this out in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about how the seed is sown before the plant, but the physical precedes the spiritual. This has priority, but the spiritual has primacy, but it's a spiritual body. It's not a ghost. Right. And so what is sown, the grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying, it's not because the grain is sinned. No, the incarnation is plan A. We have to be allowed to do our thing until we realize no, what we want is for God to do His thing yeah. in us and to liberate us from our own thing. Yeah, do you miss? Sorry. No, yes. I want to jump in here because yes. I, I go back to something that Father had said because, you know, we don't want to leave this impression, you know, holiness is for those who go into the religious life, et cetera. Right. And uh, so, you know, can, can, you, um, can you truly be holy in an ordinary vocation or, or even a, a profane vocation like the law. Can a lawyer be holy? <laughs> Sorry, I just have to get that out. Lawyers, no. but, but uh, yeah, homemaker, contractor, educator, banker, taxi driver. Doctor, nurse, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, what does that look like? You know, what does that look like? I, you know, I, I think you read the book, you're in, folks are inspired, I was inspired, but then I think, well, how do I concretize this, you know? The, the day after I finish the last page of this book, I want to start putting this into practice. And what does that look like in the... Right. Uh, I mean, the first thing is prayer. And that requires an element of silence. And that makes us feel uncomfortable. But we need to schedule that. It doesn't have to be a holy hour if we're getting started. But it ought to be a scheduled time. And so if you pray at the beginning of the day, you also probably want to have another spiritual meal by prayer in the middle of the day and at the end of the day. Prayer is to the daily work, what the Sabbath is to the other six days. There really is a transformative grace that we do so that we can be contemplatives in the middle of the world, that we can be saints and canonizable saints just by the way we do our family life, our chores, Mm -hmm. as the way we drive in rush hour, which is a challenge for me especially, (laughs) You know, but that's the thing. Once God, the extraordinary creator, stepped into the ordinary world of human experience, every aspect of human experience became sanctifiable. Yeah, Yeah, the the merely human uh, will be just inhuman. Humanism without Christ becomes uh, inhuman. And that's what we want to keep up at arm's length all the time. We need to remember that uh, when we leave, when we abandon the supernatural grace of Christ, Mm -hmm. we end up with an unnatural condition in society and in our own soul. What needs to be stressed, underlined, bold, italic, is that ultimately it's the Lord's work in us. So to, to to your point, I think, Scott, about prayer, is prayer is simply making us available to let God be who He is and let me be who I am and who he wants me to be, and by grace that that is actually possible. Right, so prayer is an opening up of the heart and a lifting up of the mind, but it's like, pick me up. Perfect, perfect. Uh, Next, our panel and our guests will share our final thoughts on God's holiness and ours. Stay with us. 
Sacraments play a key role in helping us become holy. Uh, St. Thomas uh, and the tradition of the church is that sacraments are themselves causes of grace um, through, and they're obviously all instituted, all seven of them were instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, just the fount of grace that each one gives you for whether it's grace to resist certain sins that you've been falling into from the sacrament of penance, um, the grace of new life in baptism. Uh, of course, the, the grace is flowing from the body, blood, soul, and divinity of, of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist and, and of the other sacraments. Uh, it's really, without the grace of God, you're not going to become holy. You can't do it on your own. And so the sacraments are really a gift from, from our Lord to, to help us and help his church to grow in holiness. There is a place where education begins and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. So Regis, your final thoughts? Yeah, uh, John, you uh, put a question to Scott uh, in the last episode about how can ordinary people uh, become holy uh, if it's not confined only to Carthusians <laughs> and Carmelites, but, but blokes like you and me, we too have the option of becoming saints. What, what exactly uh, does that uh, look like? How do we make the banal somehow blessed? Mm -hmm. and, for, for some reason, I, I thought of Therese uh, in the last hours of her life. I mean, she spent two years or, or more dying uh, from tuberculosis. Consumption is what finally killed her. But near the end, she wanted Holy Communion, viaticum. She, so she asks, may I receive the sacrament? And she was turned down. She mm -hmm. said, they said, you're far too sick, uh, Therese, uh, to receive viaticum, uh, offer it up. And there's a pause. And afterwards, she says, well, that's all right, because in the end, to take us, everything is grace. The ordinary really is an invitation to the extraordinary. The blessed is just on the far side of the banal if you have eyes to see. And what you see is the holiness of God who beckons you to put on that same holiness. Now, it's a real paradox because in the scriptures, anytime any page you look at, you come away covered with anxiety. The relationship I have with God is really fraught. I'm not holy. He's holy. He's perfect. I'm imperfect. He knows everything. I know nothing. He's absolute being. I'm just nakedness and nothing. Like Jesus telling Catherine of Siena, I am he who is. Look, you're she who is not. How do you bridge that gap? And it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But then when you think this God became a baby, a child, a helpless infant, infinity dwindled to infancy, it makes him all the more approachable, more tender. He's that close to us that you can reach out and touch him. He's even more helpless than you. The guy who made all the cattle can't even reach the cattle from the stable. I mean, that I think provides consolation. If this is the nature of our God, 
infinitely tender, mm -hmm. then why am I holding back? Why do I hang fire? Yeah. Let me just plunge uh, into, his, into his life. Mm -hmm. I can't lose. That's great. Thank you, Regis. John, final yeah, thoughts? Yeah, sure. You know, I think that when we hear about the holiness of God and, oh, I got to be holy, you know, be perfect, even as your holy Heavenly Father is perfect, there's a tendency in a lot of us, I think, to feel a lot of stress, like, oh, I got to really I like this raise my game and, you know, pray for three hours or something like this. And maybe a lot of us do need to increase our prayer time. But, you know, prayer is something that God does in us. And I think you made this, you're making this point, Father. W what are we doing in prayer? We're opening ourselves to God working in our heart. And I think a lot of us would be helped by just trying to do that in prayer. And then rather than going to our, you know, the 15 minutes, the half hour that we carve out, maybe in front of the Blessed Sacrament or maybe just in a quiet room in our own home, you know, rather than coming with, oh, I, there's a lot of things I need to tell God, mm -hmm. you know, just come and be quiet in God's presence and say, Lord, uh, you got to do this. Yeah. You know, I can't make myself holy. The sacraments, likewise, the sacraments are not something that we do. And I think I misunderstood that my first 30 years of my life as a Protestant. When I would hear Catholics talk about the importance of sacraments, I always thought that sounds like works righteousness, sounds like meriting your way and earning your way to heaven. What I didn't realize was that the sacraments are not human works. Mm -hmm. They're God's works. You know, they're places where we, you know, the analogy I like to use is like stepping in front of the bus. <laughs> you know, the bus does all the work when it runs you over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we come forward for communion, we're stepping in front of the Holy Spirit bus. You know, we're, we're allowing the yeah. Spirit to come upon us through Holy Communion, through baptism, yeah. through all the sacraments, yeah. really, yeah. and allowing God to work in our lives. And so I think, you know, for our viewers and for the readers of the book, um, the response is not to get all worked up and stressed, but say, you know what? I need to open myself up more and let God do this work in me because only he can Amen. do this. Amen. Good. Thanks for being with us, Scott. Final thoughts? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm thinking of what Regis said and it reminded me of Vatican II, the universal call to holiness. It's the one thing that applies to everyone. And yet it's the one thing that no one can do. And so what do we need? We need prayer. We need the sacraments. We need the Holy Spirit, you know, to run us over, but also to raise us up. Practically speaking, what does it mean? And I'm reminded again that the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, you know, after we pray, Thy will be done, everything follows from that because we're not praying to change God's mind. Mm. We're asking Him to change ours. Right. You know, we can share with Him everything that we desire, but we've got to desire what He desires even more. You know, again, St. Therese, God gives me whatever I want because I want whatever He gives. Yeah. Even if it's not Holy Communion, Viaticum. And I, I think of Amber, you know, Immaculate was over in Rwanda, mm -hmm. but Amber it was one of our students and she was diagnosed with uh, cancer. Mm -hmm. And for four years she suffered and she's passed away now. Kimberly and I were watching this YouTube video with Amber and her husband. That was, uh, was Wild Goose, we did that. Yeah, yeah it was and beautiful. she's describing an adult conversion that left my bride and me, weak need. We're like, okay, we need the grace of an adult conversion. She talked about being a good Catholic all her life. And then God was asking her to accept her children with all of these disabilities. And this is then the preface, the prelude to the discovery that she's got cancer. Mm. And the weaker she got, the closer she got. Becoming a saint is not about making ourselves bigger and better, smarter and stronger. It's becoming smaller and growing closer to the Lord Jesus and to the Blessed Virgin so that we see ourselves like that infant Jesus and allow the infinite 
to fill our own spiritual infancy. Amen. Childlikeness. Sounds fun. Yeah. Thank you so much, Scott. We have this handout available uh, for you today. It's written by Dr. Peter Kraft. It's the forward to Holies' name. It's a short excerpt for yours for free, simply by going to faithandreason.com presents or by calling the number we'll provide momentarily. Um, I remember sitting in a class here as a student, I think it was a junior, it was a course on scripture and the teacher, the professor was talking about this call to be holy. And I, I don't remember the first time I actually thought about being holy. It was just something my family, my parents talked about a lot, but I was in the midst of discerning my vocation. And, and the, the professor talked about, I don't remember what scripture it was, but he was talking about this call that we have to be holy. And it just penetrated my heart. And I knew that ultimately that's where I was going to discern my vocation is that the Lord was calling Dave Pavanka to a vocation that would he would be able to be most holy. And he did the same call for my brother Mark and for my sister Mary, right? And they're, they're each one of them following the Lord's will and the call to be holy. And I think that that's what the, the challenge and the invitation is, is, is that God wants his people to be holy. He wants to sanctify us and make us holy. And, and how I respond to that and how I say yes to that is my gifts, my talents, my personalities, this kind of this way that he's created me and then sanctifying grace of baptism in the Eucharist and the reconciliation that ultimately, um, what is it to be a saint? I think it is me being the person that God created me to be. And this is where we're going to be holy. So we pray for all those who are, who are viewing our program, Lord, that it, even at this moment, you'd pour out your grace, your power, your spirit, your Holy Spirit upon them. Let them know your love. Let them know your holiness and let them know the grace and the holiness that they've been called. May Almighty God pour out his blessings on you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks Amen. so much. Download a free handout on today's topic at faithandreason.com presents. You can also watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request the handout by emailing us at presents at franciscan.edu. Or reach us by phone for today's handout by calling 800-783-6447. That's 800-783-6447.